have arrived at a point of consideration as we give our attention to and think carefully about the nature of the Word of God over the next few moments this morning. Isn't it a wonderful thing that we have the road map that leads to heaven in our possession? It is not left to accidental chance, nor is it left to by other mysterious means. We have the means that will guarantee each of us a blessed and beautiful eternal home in that beautiful glory land beyond. How wonderful it is, then, that we can enter into a study of it, a consideration of it, to, in fact, guide and direct our lives in the way they ought to go. And over the next few moments this morning, would you think with me again about the book of First Peter? By way of introduction to, to this very lesson this morning, we began last Lord's Day by noting that we would study the book of First Peter as we recognized it was one of those books that our Bible Bowl students are interested and engaged in considering, and we thought that it would be well for us, even as adults, to study these books along with them. And so each of the lessons over the next several weeks will be patterned after those same books in order that they are studying. And today we'll draw to a conclusion our study of First Peter. By way of recollection, you might remember we learned that the idea of suffering is a key element in this book. That word itself, or some variant thereof, occurs 17 times in the 105 verses. And amazingly enough, time and again, we learn that this issue is vital not only for those of that day, but for us too. For each of us, as we'll learn today, often encounters a gigantic and formidable foe, and he will bring, if he possibly can, difficulties and afflictions our way, and we need to know how to approach them, how to conquer them, how to victoriously pursue after them, and that'll be a part of our lesson even this morning. We learned last Sunday, too, that there were two great things presented in chapters 1 and 2. One was the great salvation. The thought that you and I can lift our eyes on one glorious morning and see before us the eternity of beautiful heaven and to be saved from sin and to enjoy remission therefrom is truly a blessing almost indescribable. And not only that, the means by which that glorious gift is enjoyed is through the great example. We should be like Christ. 1 Peter 2, verses 21 and following. He is our example. But to say those things points us to the two ideas of today. It is not all so rosy when we remember that there is a great enemy. There is a great foe. There is a great adversary, a diabolical one who has as his goal and objective the crushing defeat of each and every one of us, our separation from God and our eternal destiny in his own hell. Not only that, not only is there a great enemy, he opposes in every regard the godly living that Christ and God alone would have us to appreciate and to follow day by day. It is thus to that controversy, to that battle, to that war, I would invite your attention with me this morning. And it is to that reason that I've entitled the lesson, The Great Enemy Versus Godly Living. Let's first paint a picture of this gigantic enemy. This great enemy that's ours, and the text that was read in our hearing a moment ago led us in that direction. Would you give attention with me to verse 8 of 1 Peter 5? Here, Peter describes in tremendously compelling words the nature of this great enemy that is ours. After devoting some four chapters and a bit more to a discussion of life in Christ and how great salvation is and how great our example is and the greatness of communion and fellowship that we enjoy, 
and how great a name that we are privileged to wear. As he draws near the close of the book, Peter presents a tremendous reason why we should give such consideration and careful thought to our daily life in Jesus. And hence, would you think with me about the wording of verse 8? Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Maybe we've often reflected upon that text and thought about the urgency of it. But let me emphasize the urgency, if I might, in yet another way. In the Greek language, a particular verb carries with it several ideas, one of which is its tense and one of which is something else called its mood. These words in the Greek are in the imperative mood. And the word imperative means that in essence Peter stated this with great exclamation. If you want to think of it that way with me, with me it's as though he said, Be sober! Exclamation point. Be vigilant! Exclamation point. This was heavily weighing upon the mind of Peter. It is not an optional nor arbitrary issue. With great urgency and earnestness, he advises, admonishes, and warns his listeners, you be sober and you be vigilant. But perhaps we might ask, well, what does it mean to be sober? For after all, that word, as it's employed in the Greek text and our King James translation, is significantly different than the way we often employ that word today. For instance, we typically use the word sober to mean not drunken or not inebriated or not intoxicated. And it's true that there are certain passages in the New Testament in which it would seem that that word carries that same meaning, but it generally is much broader than that. And as I've indicated on the screen to my left, I've defined for you using a Greek lexicon and some ideas of the Greek text what that word sober means. It means to be self-controlled and calm. And note with me carefully that extended idea of being free from every form of mental and spiritual excess. Note with me carefully, please, the nature of this soberness carries sound decision-making having one's mind freed from the dispositions of following that which is truly focused upon the goal at hand, to be self-controlled and able to make proper, sound judgments and decisions. But what about the word vigilant? For that too was very greatly made note here by Peter too. That word vigilant means to be ever alert, to be watchful. And note again the extended idea that I've associated with it to give strict attention in order to avoid being suddenly overtaken and destroyed in a calamity. Isn't it amazing that here, as Peter wrote to these ones that were dispersed abroad, as he wrote to these various strangers in the areas of Asia Minor, he urged them to be of such disposition with calmness and collectedness to make sound decisions and what's more, to be very carefully watchful and diligent at that, because if not, you may well be overtaken and overwhelmed. It's as though he's describing an enemy, an almost invisible one who seeks to destroy. In fact, that very idea asks us to note the very following statement in that verse. He is describing a great enemy. There is great reason to be concerned. 
that great enemy is this foe known as the devil. In verse 8, because, be sober, be vigilant, because, here's the reasoning. It isn't arbitrary, nor is it simply a figment of Peter's imagination. Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. The devil is likened to a roaring lion. And may we not take that analogy too lightly. On the desert plains of Africa and other regions of the world in which one may find a roaring lion, how many of us would feel comfortable approaching it easily? Especially when he is roaring and giving the indication that he's hungry. Peter says there is an arch enemy, this very diabolical foe who very much like a roaring lion is on the prowl. In fact, some translations of the Bible, and rather than that phrase, walking about, says as a prowling lion. He's on the search. He's on the move. He is desirous of finding prey in his victims. And may we appreciate that lions do not pursue victims in order to, in fact, congratulate them, nor praise them. Lions do not catch prey with an intended fact to lift them up and adore them. His goal is to kill them. His goal is to overwhelm and overpower them, and in fact, destroy them. And hence, the usage by Peter of the word devour. That word in the Greek means, as I've indicated on the screen, it means to completely overpower, and what's more, it means to bring completely under control. Satan's wish and his desire is not to bring a better person to you and me. It is not, in fact, to improve our person and to make our stature and our disposition improved. It is not to congratulate nor praise us. His wish is to overpower you and me, and furthermore, to bring us entirely beneath His control. As we think about that idea, do we not appreciate the fact that Peter's warning is right on target? We must never underestimate this foal this diabolical demon, this adversary, this Satan, as he's called elsewhere in the Holy Scriptures. As far as some passages and other thoughts about him, the Bible on many occasions lists and informs us about his existence. Maybe many have through the years etched in their mind that thought of how he used to be portrayed on the old Flip Wilson comedy show as this one dressed up in a red suit with horns and a long tail and a pitchfork. If that's the only view we have of Satan, we are sorely in ways of being overwhelmed by him. He does not appear to us in as easily a seen way as that. A lion will stalk his prey. His color is such that he's camouflaged in the weeds and the various things there on the deserts of Africa. He doesn't appear in the open until he's ready to pounce. Satan will do the same for you and me. He is subtle, Genesis 3.1. He is crafty and wily, 2 Corinthians 11.3. He is such that he will pounce upon the weakness of those that are presented before him. When one asks about then the origin and character of this Satan, several words in the Scriptures reveal a great deal about him. First of all, it would appear from Jude verses 4 and following that he in one time had a station itself recognized as a godly one, and yet he chose to fall therefrom. He chose to willfully disobey the God whom he ought to have served. And as such, 
He himself is the leader of a band of rebel angels who are themselves awaiting that great and final destruction day. For we read that hell's prepared for who? The devil and his angels, those that chose to follow him. In recognition of that fact, might we observe then that that which awaits them from Second Peter 2 is none other than the very fact of an eternity in chains separated from God and the punishment that's to be associated with that separation. This devil, you see, would like for you and me to be exactly where he one day will be. Is that a place we'd like to be? Certainly it isn't. And hence, no wonder Peter is so urgent in saying, you be watchful, you be careful and ever alert to the fact that there is an enemy stalking about who is desirous of your destruction. This foe then that we've mentioned, Jesus called in John eight forty four, there a murderer from the beginning. A murderer from the very beginning. He isn't interested in preserving your life or mine. It is his desire to destroy it. In 1 John 3, 8, he's a liar. He won't tell us the truth. He will cloud and disguise the nature of that doom that's before us and make sin seem so pleasurable and so longingly interesting. Even the Hebrew writer made note that there's pleasure in sin for a season. That's what Satan will emphasize. The temporary, short-term character of the pleasure, but he'll never bring to our mind the more permanent character of the loss. How far our soul will suffer. The longing nature of an eternity where we are there in the gnashing of teeth, where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Mark 9, verses 43 to 48. Time and again, we see that Satan will emphasize what appears to be the more powerful good when in fact there isn't even any of that. But never will he mention the long-term distress, anguish and suffering that that sin will bring. But this text in 1 Peter 5a has perhaps led us to consider it some briefly admittedly, the nature of the book of Revelation. We are considering this, of course, on Sunday evening, and when we arrive at the appropriate chapters, more discussion will there be given. But might we remember in Revelation 12, one of the most interesting descriptions of Satan is given anywhere in all the Bible. There in verses 9 and 10, we are informed and told that this diabolical one, and you may have noted I've used that term already a couple of times, that word diabolical occurs there. He is one that comes from the Greek word diabolos. It means the dastardly one. The one who, in fact, is diabolical in character. Well, that's Satan. He is a deceiver of the whole world. Revelation 12, verses 9 and 10. He will deceive you and me if opportunity presents itself. If he sees that by that deception he can bring us to a separation from God and the very Savior who loved us enough to die for us. This Satan is one who is described in that book of Revelation as that great dragon. But as we end that book, what is the fate of the dragon? What happens to him? Is he ultimately victorious and triumphant? Is he able to overwhelm the forces of Christ and God? Far from it. In chapter 20, we see that he is cast along with all those who follow him into an eternal everlasting lake that burns with fire and brimstone. There's the end of the Satan. There's the end of his forces, and thus he'll never enter heaven. He will never be able to bring those who are blessed to enter there out of it. 
We don't want to have an end like He does. We don't want to, in fact, appreciate the same faith that He will endure. Hence, Peter's admonition, you be watchful, you be sober. You make sound decisions and base them on the character of the revelation of God. Let the revelation of God's Spirit through the character of the Word guide us in our thinking and make right decisions. To say these things so far about the character of Satan, in 1 Peter 5 verse 9, near the close of that book, he admonishes our steadfastness. Isn't it true that sometimes despair may come our way? We perhaps begin to see around us and maybe those whom we're so interested in and praying about seem no have to have no interest in the Scriptures, in being right with God, and maybe a note of discouragement will come our way. May we never allow that discouragement to quench our faith to the point that we cross over to Satan's side. Peter admonishes steadfastness, consistency, diligence in our pursuit of the things of heaven. But in light of those comments, I noted earlier that our lesson title was The Great Enemy Versus Godly Living. We've noted in chapter 5 the emphasis on the great enemy. How often did Peter in these 105 verses of 1 Peter emphasize godly living? And may we note they are directly opposite one another. Satan will never encourage godly living. He will never encourage that to the point of trying to pursue it or encourage it or edify it. It, In fact, it will be his goal to destroy godly living, to oppose it, to in fact bring it to ruin if he has his way. Let us then look at the ways that Peter encourages godly living. May we suggest that in so many ways the scriptures are rather plain as it describes living for God. And that's all that godly living means. It means to conduct one's life in a fashion and in a way that would uphold the things that God approves and would oppose the things that He condemns. As godly living is addressed throughout this book, this brings us to recognize that one of the things that Satan does is to bring compromise into the life of Christians. As we noted earlier, Satan does not immediately pounce into the open. Rather, by very clever and subtle means, he brings compromise so often into the life of a Christian in which week by week and month by month and perhaps even year by year, a given thought and a given compromise is slowly appreciated so that one moves away from a truth, not suddenly but gradually. And then after some time, realizing suddenly one appreciates he is now light years from the truth. But he has come that way slowly. You see, compromise can be a deadly thing. As you and I think about compromise, let's return then to the book of 1 Peter and notice the admonitions to godly living and the warnings given toward compromise to it. Might we notice that I've listed some of the first things that we might consider there immediately? Isn't it an amazing fact? that there are those who may well come into a house of worship on a Sunday, but then as the good friends at work want to stop off after work and get a beer on the way home, perhaps in recognition that there's no Christian here, maybe a person doesn't feel so bad about doing that. When all the while we understand that's just one element toward a strong compromise, isn't it? 
Or that person who would never say on a Sunday what he's willing to say in the amongst of his friends on a Monday at work or perhaps with the neighbor next door. Our language is powerful, isn't it? And it ought to be guarded each and every day, not just on a Sunday or perhaps a Wednesday, but each and every day our language should be speak the clear thoughts that are in our head and those thoughts of godliness that are to be found therein. Was it not stated in Philippians 4a? There the admonition to think on things that are true and honest and just and lovely and virtuous and of a good report. If there be any virtue and praise, think on these things. And if those are the things that fill our mind, then our language will not be profane or forward or vulgar or in any ways condemnational. Our language thus is a vital element. And here, even in the very book of First Peter, in an interesting fashion, that is admonished of us. But consider other things too. Is it not also the case that sometimes we allow the entertainment that we pursue to also be an element of compromise to that which is holy and right? For instance, when we are willing to perhaps watch a particular thing on the television tube, and we openly invite this into our homes and houses and the security to be found therein, and yet presented before our very eyes are these acts of filth and ungodliness, these acts which not only are that which is not true and just and virtuous and of good report and honest, but in fact illustrates and shows the ugliness of this world and the things that Satan most cherishes. And yet we invite that into our homes and we watch hour after hour after hour of it. Is that wise? Would that be categorized under being sober and being vigilant? It would seem that at the very least it must be questioned. For after all, does one invite a roaring lion into his house? I don't think any of us would. We would, in fact, hurriedly close the door and bolt it with recognition that there are people we want to keep safe. Not only ourselves, but our wife, our children. We want Satan as far from them as we can get him. And yet we invite this TV program into our homes. Or we go to watch a movie. Or we perhaps go to other entertainment dispositions. May we be ever careful. Or there may be more compromise there than we're willing to believe. As one thinks about these, let us be a bit more specific. Beginning back in 1 Peter 1, in verses 15 and 16, as I list at the bottom, let us somewhat briefly look at the first of four quick lessons that we can consider about godly living from this book. In verses 15 and 16, Peter writes, But as he which hath called you is holy... So be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. The word holy is used there in a rather direct fashion, isn't it? And that word simply means to be morally pure, to be consecrated or set aside to the service of God. To our mind should immediately come various ideas of holiness as seen in the Old Testament. In fact, on that occasion when the tabernacle was constructed and later the temple, there were various articles of furniture contained in that temple and tabernacle. There was a table of showbread, an altar of incense, a golden candlestick. There was the Ark of the Covenant with the golden cherubim upon them. Those articles were holy. That is to say, they had been consecrated, sanctified, and set aside for God's service. 
But now the New Testament application, you're holy if you're a Christian, and I'm holy if I'm a Christian, and thus does that not then mean that you and I are set aside for the service of God? Sure, that's what it means. That's what the word saint means, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 1 and 2. Thus, if you and I are set aside for God's service, we ought not then devote our bodies to the pursuit of that which is unholy. Those two do not go together. This act then of holiness and this thought of holy living brings us to the recognition of the adjective that Peter uses in verse 15. He says, in all manner of conversation. Notice he doesn't say, well, every now and then you need to be holy, or once in a while you need to be holy, but in all manner of your daily living, you need to then strive for that level of holy living and acceptable godly disposition. That, brethren, is a tremendous responsibility for us, isn't it? But oh, how beautiful to note that by all means and in all occasions, we, by our life and our words and our conduct, can set before others a prime example of the love and grace and mercy of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In fact, did not Paul later say, but we always bear in our body the marks of the Lord Jesus, Galatians 6. And did he not also say in 2 Corinthians 4, that you and I are such that others should see Christ in us. That's a great responsibility, isn't it? But that does return and ask us about then this matter of holy living. No wonder later he would say in 1 Peter 2, verses 11 to 13, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Satan is able to bring before our mind and in order to, for us to appreciate various and sundry ideas, and it's so tempting perhaps to pursue them, those fleshly lusts. Peter warned, you abstain from them. And that word abstain means to keep distant from them, have no dealings with them. May you and I see then the imperative nature of, in fact, this evil foe that is against us, and to live holily and righteously and godly, so that he will have little opportunity to get at us. One of the particular means of discussion that I've often found useful for my thinking, we know that Satan is powerful. The Bible over and again, in fact, in Revelation, he's that great and mighty dragon that's able to overcome so many aspects of the world. But yet Jesus is stronger than he Satan, in a very real way, is like a dog, a mad, ferocious dog who is tied. If you and I are foolish enough to walk within the bounds of the chain, then he will get us. But if we are wise enough to maintain our distance and to let Jesus maintain separation between us and the extent of that chain, we will be safe. That's what Jesus did. He bound Satan. When we get to Revelation 20, we'll see that's the key idea of the whole chapter, the binding of Satan. And when the, Lord, when the Lord bound him, he can provide to you and me the means of overcoming him completely. In Revelation 12, verse 11, there are three elements in overcoming the devil. When we see their relation to this godly living, this is how they're described. First, the word of the testimony of God, the Holy Scriptures. Second, the blood of Christ. And third, being willing to die for the cause of Jesus, if that is demanded of us. When we appreciate then that when we tie on to Christ, we can overcome the devil. That's one of the main ideas in all the glorious book of Revelation. 
But notice this matter of holy living leads us then to ask the question, what about you and me personally? Do I strive daily to live holily? Or am I too quick to compromise and to allow others to bring things into my life that the Lord doesn't find pleasing? When that dirty joke is told at work, do I go along and laugh with them? Or do I simply turn and walk away and let them understand that I don't appreciate what was said and that I'm not happy about it and that I'll not participate in it? We noticed this morning that Abraham in our Bible study was unwilling to have his reputation for a servant of God to be tarnished by accepting gifts, if you will, from the king of Sodom. Are we too quick to receive the gifts of the ungodly, iniquity things of the world? Do we rather maintain our separation as Christians? Oh, how we must live in a holy conduct day by day, not only on the Sundays and Wednesdays, but yea, each day. For again, we read here, the fact is, it's all manner of conversation. And the word in the American standard is all manner of lifestyle or living. But not only that, let us look at yet another aspect that's an important part of our conduct in keeping Satan at bay. It has to do with authority. We're also aware of the fact that authority is a prime issue in the world, for that is able to keep confusion and anarchy at a minimum. When individuals recognize a hierarchy or a given established authority, things run, at least in general, much more smoothly. No wonder Peter so often references authority. You and I live in a place and in a time when we so often see rebellion. We see individuals who, even in schools, don't appreciate the authority of their teacher. Civil law enforcement officials inform us that so often individuals don't appreciate the authority of the civil law of our land. Nations don't appreciate the character of the ultimate nature of law as it's presented, but often exhibit rebellion. There's rebellion to be seen in the home when in many instances it would seem children fail to appreciate the authority of the parent. In the church, there are those that fail to appreciate the authority of the elders. And on and on the list may go. But notice with me how often Peter discusses the evil of rebellion and the power of proper authority. I begin by asking you to consider in 1 Peter 2 verse 13. To these individuals, he said, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. We know that Peter had in mind civil governmental ideas, civil dispositions of authority. And he said, submit to them. You don't fly in the face of them and just because you're a Christian claim authority over them or superiority to them, you submit to them. And didn't Paul warn the Romans of the same thing in Romans 13 verses 1 through 3? There he expressly noted there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. And as Christians, we ought to be the best citizens that there is. We should be those who submit to every ordinance of man, but not because we simply feel like it, he says, for the Lord's sake. Now, we understand that if man were to make laws that oppose God's, we ought to obey God rather than men, Acts 5.29. But so long as those laws are not in disharmony with the Scriptures, we ought to then follow them. We should submit to them. Later in verse 17, he even said, 
honor the king. Now, in our land, in our day, we no longer have a king like the Roman Caesar or the Roman emperor. And we don't have a king like Nebuchadnezzar was in the Old Testament. But our governmental officials, Peter warned, are worthy of our respect. They are worthy of our consideration for we are to submit to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. But not only authority in that way. Notice also the authority in regard to the church. There are elders in First Peter 5 verses 1 through 4 describe their work and what a blessed work it is. They take that oversight and they do so, we appreciate, not for the money, not for filthy lucre, not because they desire the praise of men, but they do so because they love the souls of those members of that congregation. Notice with me verse 2, Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. As they serve in that position, we should strive to lift up their hands by aiding them to accomplish their work in whatever ways we can. First Thessalonians 5, verses 11 and 12, urge us to respect and honor them highly. And as we do that, we will aid them as they strive to guide and direct us. You see, that's an important authority, and we shouldn't run roughshod over it. But in addition to authority in the church, consider the authority in the home, 1 Peter 3, verses 1 and following. Here, Peter makes note of the fact that there's husband and wife, and the husband is not to look down on the wife. Now, admittedly, she is called in that particular text in verse 7, as such that he should give honor to her as the weaker vessel. But that is no insult. That is, in fact, a recognition that he is to honor and appreciate her as a beautiful creature that God has made. And as such, he should lead and direct that household in the way that it ought to go. It's an amazing fact, then, that as authority is broached in many of these particular passages, there is yet one more. In First Peter 5, verse 5, we read, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. Interesting, isn't it? We understand that here he's discussing it a different kind of submission, a different kind of authority. We should appreciate the kind and godly remarks that our brothers and sisters in Christ may make to us. We noted in the book of James how improper it is to show partiality. Peter says we ought to appreciate and to respect one another. We ought to understand that as we submit one to another, that means that we each, in humility and in lowliness of mind, will strive to not only forbear each other, but we can be that great aid to help each other reach that golden strand of glory one fine day. It's a beautiful idea to think about a group of people who submit and love each other and who serve beneath the godly oversight of these elders and who are striving to simply be the people God would have them to be. As Peter has mentioned this behavior, this kind of conduct, it leads us to yet a third question. What about model behavior? In 1 Peter 3 verse 9, Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing. Are we sometimes quick to insult someone that insults us? Are we sometimes quick to, in fact, do the very thing to someone else that they did to us, even though that thing was bad? 
notice that Jesus did not say in Matthew seven twelve to do unto others as they have done unto you. He said, rather, you do unto others as you would have them do unto you. If someone has treated us insultingly, we have no right to insult them back. Rather, in love, we should bless them and pray that things would be better with and for them. At times, that's hard, I understand. But that's the godly way, isn't it? Satan would urge us to treat others the evil, mean way they have treated us, but that's not Christ's way. On the cross, to the very ones who had pierced his side and who, in fact, had crucified him, he said, forgive them, for they don't know what they've done. Isn't that a loving disposition? Our disposition in Christ, then, should be that we should strive to have a model behavior in which we don't insult or revile others who have done the same to us. We strive to control ourselves, that word sober again, to be self-controlled and not do that. Notice perhaps finally, as we reach the character of this fourth point, may we notice in chapter 4 verse 3 there are many other things that are to be set aside by that person who is desirous of keeping Satan at bay. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, those things and all that goes with them then should not be a part of the person interested in following Jesus. For notice that those things are abominable. Many ideas are presented there. Excess of wine is, of course, drunkenness. These abominable idolatries present before us the thought of recognizing greatness in anything ultimately other than God. Notice that these other words such as revelings and banquetings refer to drinkings and carousings, party-type atmospheres in which things that go on are not honorable to God. In a world that seeks entertainment, too often that seems to happen, doesn't it? May we be wise enough to avoid it. And may we, in fact, encourage in others that they would think twice about participating. For again, Satan is on the prowl. He is a roaring lion, is seeking whom he may devour, and he's already devoured many. But they can be rescued. We can keep ourselves in the love of God, Jude verses 20 and 21, and we, in fact, can snatch others out of the fire. Those same two verses. As we draw our lesson this morning to a conclusion, may we thus summarize and think about some of these ideas. The greatness to be seen, the wonderful book of 1 Peter. The interesting fact is that quite often, Satan will bring adversarial things into my life and yours. He'll bring suffering our way. Oh, we may not be threatened with death like they were in Peter's day, but it'll be insults and revilings from others who don't appreciate living for Jesus. They don't understand it, and they think that it's foolishness. But may we always remember that Peter said, it is well worth whatever the insults may bring, for there is a foe who is searching intently for you. Be wise, be vigilant, be sober, make sound decisions and avoid him. Keep him at bay. Godly living is what will help us do that. If we could aid you this morning in becoming a Christian, Jesus does not promise that you will not suffer for him. But he says that during the suffering, I'll be with you. I'll be with you always, even to the end of the world, Matthew twenty-eight twenty. Today, if you're not a Christian, 
Jesus said you must come to him by understanding the truth of the revelation of him, that he is the Son of God, believe that. Repent of the sins that nailed him to the cross, your sins. Confess his glorious name as your Savior and be immersed, baptized, where you contact his blood and he'll wash the sins away. If you need to do that today, it could be a glorious day for you, a beautiful day for the the remainder of your life. If you have become a Christian in former days, but you have lost sight of godly living, Satan has gotten the upper hand, you need to come back to your first love. Cast him away from your life at this moment by coming back to Christ. Prayer can aid us, can help you in doing that, and we'll be happy to pray with you and for you. If either of these things is a need of your life today, do not delay any longer, but will you not even come, even now, while together we stand and while we sing?